We are in the, um, uh, the ninth week of an 11-week journey through the life of Abraham. And today we're going to continue that in Genesis chapter number 22. If you are there in Genesis 22, would you shout amen? Amen. amen. I want you to take a look at the screens with me, and I want you to say these words with me out loud. You just sang them, but now I want you to say them on both campuses. Let's do it. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Can we do it one more time? Would it be weird to do it twice? Let's do it one more time. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him There's something about saying those words that's different than singing them, isn't it? It, it almost, when you say it like you just did, it almost brings out the weight of what you're saying, more than, more than just being a line in the lyric of a song. It's almost like a wedding vow, where it, it's, it's almost as if you're looking into the eyes of the Lord and you are, in fact, saying, everything I'm giving to you. You know, can you imagine how non-serious a wedding would seem if the bride and groom sang their vows to one another? It'd just be kind of silly sounding. But when they look into one another's eyes and they and they say, I take you to be my husband or my wife from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and health. And there's there's a weight that comes with that. When we say to the Lord, All to you I surrender, all to you. I give. Think about what we're saying. When we say all, we mean everything about us. All of our heart, which means all of our loves, everything and everyone that we love, all to Jesus I surrender. It means my passions, it means our ambitions, it means our desires. For those of us who are married, it means our marriage. We have children, it means our family. It means the way that we function as a family, the way we respond to one another as a family. I surrender that to Jesus. It means the way that we manage and handle conflict. I surrender that, I give it to Jesus. It means the future, all of my days, whatever I am to ever be or become, I give to Jesus. And it also means my past, so that I don't hold on to it and live in it and live under the guilt and the shame of it or in the past victories and never looking for any victories in the future, that I give it all to Jesus. It means all of our possessions. It's our declaration that we don't own anything, that he is the owner and we simply trust him with all that we will ever need. It means that our money, our home, our wealth, our material goods, all of those belong to him. It means our time. When we say all, we mean all. And when we say, I surrender, all to Jesus, I surrender, it literally means that I relinquish control of. It's the idea of opening my hands and stepping back from. All that I am, I surrender to you. I don't own it. I don't control it. I'm not the master of it. I surrender it to you. And when we say all to Jesus, I surrender, 
It begs the question, is he worthy of it? Is Jesus worth all of my life? Is Jesus worthy that I would say he is Lord of everything? He is worthy that I would fully surrender to him. When I say that I surrender all to Jesus, I am am answering the question, do I trust Jesus truly? Do I trust him enough to give him my life? Do I trust him enough to surrender everything about me to him? The question is, does Jesus have a part of us or does Jesus have all of us? All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Now these are the questions Am I willing to give him everything? And is he worthy of it? And do I trust him? These are the questions that Abraham was confronted with today in our text in Genesis chapter number 22. Abraham was forced to answer those very questions. So as I mentioned, we are in week number nine of this 11-week series where we've been thinking together about the life and the family and the faith of Abraham. Last Sunday, you will remember, I hope, that we celebrated with Abraham and Sarah. Maybe I should say it this way. We celebrated with elderly Abraham and Sarah the birth, the miraculous conception and birth of this son of their old age, their son Isaac. He was this son that could have never been conceived without the touch of God enabling Sarah's womb to conceive and carry that child without touching this couple to have this baby. And he was the hope in which everything that God had promised to Abraham was all rested on his shoulders. He was the heir of Abraham. He was the line of covenant blessing. All of the blessings that God had promised Abraham were going to come through Isaac or they weren't going to come at all. He was the one that was to be this fulfillment of this long-awaited promise. And in fact, he was the hope of the Messiah. Without Isaac, there would be no Israel. Without Israel, there would be no Messiah. And without a Messiah, there would be no hope of eternal salvation for any of us. It is not a stretch to say that in every sense of the word, the hopes of the world for eternity hung in the balance on the well-being, the survival of this boy, Isaac. In chapter 22... Isaac is no longer a baby. He's born in chapter 21. But when you come to chapter 22, verse 12, look at that verse, you will see that Isaac is called a lad. Now, the word lad means he is at least an adolescent. It really means a young man. So he's he's reached adolescence, maybe a young teenager, maybe even a teenager, 18, even upwards of 20 years old. So he is a young man. Man, can you imagine how many times over the course of of Isaac's 15 or 20 uh, years, how many times Abraham had told him about God's promises in the covenant? 
I mean, you know that Abraham did this, right? You know that they had father and son talks, long talks, where uh, Abraham would say to Isaac, let me tell you again how God came to me. When I was living in the Ur of the Chaldees and my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, they were all worshiping the moon and the stars. and, And yet, Isaac, the true God, Yahweh, the one true God, he came to me and he revealed himself to me. And he told me to leave the Ur and to follow him and to come into the land that he would show me. And so we did. And we left and we went to Haran. And we were there for a few years. But then when daddy died, we left Haran and we made our way on into Canaan. And Isaac, God has been with us through all of these years in Canaan. You know he told him about the journey down into Egypt and God's faithfulness there. You know he told him about fighting those kings of the north to rescue Lot. He told the war stories for sure and how that God was faithful to him. You know that he would have said to him, Isaac, you are the son of promise. God has made all of these promises and he's going to fulfill them through you. But Isaac... You serve the Lord. You be faithful. Isaac, I've seen the judgment of God. I've seen the fire fall on Sodom. Don't you make the same mistakes that your cousin Lot made. You know he gave him that warning. You know that Abraham shared with him about his half-brother Ishmael, who Isaac could have only barely remembered, if at all, But he would have shared with him the the ill-conceived idea how that he had married Hagar at the the, uh, encouragement of Sarah and she had given birth to Ishmael. He would have told him this whole story. And yet, Isaac, God, is going to keep his promise. I, I can imagine Abraham standing next to Isaac with his arm around his shoulder in the night outside of the tent. There's sandals in the sand, all the campfires out, nothing but the stars illuminating that sky over the desert. They would have looked like bright lights because of no unnatural light uh, def- uh, deflecting them. And he would have looked up and he would have said, Yes, sir, Isaac, look up there, man. You're going to have that many descendants. You're going to get a wife and you're going to have babies. And God is going to give you descendants like the stars of the heaven. That's his promise, Isaac. And God keeps his promises. And then the morning of chapter 22 dawned bright and beautiful. And God came to Abraham. Look at it, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse number 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am, yes, Lord. And God said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there, As a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will show you. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. 
Take your son and offer him. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and he saddled his donkey. He got two of his young servants with him and Isaac his son. He claved the wood for the burnt offering. He rose up and he went unto the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place, the place where he would offer his son afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, you stay here, abide here with the donkey. I and the lad will go there, go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went, both of them, together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Yes, my son, here am I. And Isaac said, Behold, here's the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, A ram was caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him uh, him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, says the Lord, Because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son, then in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is simply a restatement of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. God says, I'm affirming this covenant because, verse 18, you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, along with Isaac, of course, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. And all God's people said, whoo, <laughs> that was close. Yeah. Let's talk about it. There's a lot happening here, isn't there? Let, let's walk through this passage and just note a couple of the uh, most obvious 
highlights that we ought to think about. There are a couple of features in this text that you just can't afford to miss. One is, and it's really the most obvious, is God's shocking command. And it is shocking. It's God's shocking command to Abraham. What God said to Abraham defies understanding until you, until you read the entire text and see what God was doing. God said to him in verse number two, take Isaac to a place that I will show you and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, the fact is that prior to Genesis 22, there are only two places in the book of Genesis where um, burnt offerings are mentioned. Now, later, in, in, uh, under uh, Moses and the Levitical law, burnt offerings will become very much a part of that Israeli or that Jewish worship system. But when Abraham is living, it's not. In fact, it's, it's much less obvious. Only two places. One is in Genesis chapter 4, where Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, Abel makes an offering to the Lord of the first or the best of his flock. Do you remember that? Now, we're not told in Genesis 4 that it's a burnt offering, but we can assume that God's method would be the same. And so he makes this uh, offering, or we presume this burnt offering to the Lord. Then, in Genesis chapter number 8, there's another mention of a burnt offering. And in Genesis 8, it is specifically called a burnt offering. It's made by uh, Noah as soon as the flood waters recede and Noah comes off of the ark, he takes some of the animals that have been on the ark with him and he makes an offering to the Lord, a burnt offering to the Lord. So what becomes clear is that God had somehow, at some time, in some way, instructed his people prior to the flood that they were to worship him with offering animal sacrifice, with making burnt offerings to him. We don't know exactly how this instruction came. Perhaps it came as far back as the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and needed their nakedness to be covered. Do you remember how God covered their nakedness? Two animals died, and he covered them in animal skins. You might just presume that those animals just died or were slaughtered and their skins taken, but wouldn't it make sense that God would demonstrate from that very first offering, this is how the offering is to be made? So could it be, I don't know for sure, that perhaps God made the first burnt offering in the very Garden of Eden when those two animals were killed? Nonetheless, his people knew about burnt offerings and that instruction had made its way 400 years beyond Noah, beyond the flood, and into the life of Abraham. Abraham knew how to offer a burnt offering. Genesis 12 and verse 8 tells us that he built an altar. And we know that altars were for offerings. And so when God says to him, make a burnt offering of Isaac, Abraham knows exactly what he is to do. Now, because we don't know a lot about burnt offerings, because we don't make animal sacrifices. Can I get a witness from anybody? You glad you don't make animal sacrifices? Amen. We don't know a lot about them. So let me, let me take a minute and explain to you exactly what God was saying when he said, make a burnt offering with Isaac. And a burnt offering 
First of all, the animal is obviously slaughtered. Once the animal is slaughtered, the blood of that animal is caught. This would be the difference from a slaughterhouse or a meat house and a place where an offering is being made. The blood is caught for an offering into a vessel, and that blood is then sprinkled on the four corners of the altar. This is what God instructed Abraham to do with Isaac. Slaughter your son, catch his blood, and then put the blood of your son on the four corners of the altar. Once that blood is applied to the altar, then the animal would be skinned and flayed, and all of that animal, now cut in pieces, would be placed upon the fire upon the altar and burned for hours until it was completely consumed. All of the flesh, all of the bones, until everything was completely consumed. And when God said in verse number two, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering, that is exactly what he was telling Abraham to do. It's shocking. The second thing that's notable in this passage that you should find exemplary and instructive, in fact, is Abraham's obedience. In other words, what Abraham did in response to what God had said. I don't know how you or I would respond if God came to us, and he never would, but if God came to us and said, offer your child as a sacrifice, I don't know how you or I would respond to that. But the way that Abraham responded is quite literally incredible. Look at it in verse number three. The Bible says Abraham rose up early the next morning. He saddled his donkey. He prepared to travel. He called two of his servants to come and travel with him. He woke up his son. He gathered the wood. He got some embers of fire and a clay pot to carry that may light a fire each night and then light the altar fire. He took the knife that was to be used in the sacrifice and gathering everything that he needed, he began this three-day journey of sacrifice that would end in the offering of his son. He didn't hesitate. He didn't argue. He didn't say, no way will I ever do that. I'm not going there. Don't you dare ask me to do that. He simply obeyed. Here's a principle. I want you to write it down in your notes. Let it burn into your heart. Always remember this in your relationship with the Lord. In matters of obedience, don't delay, but obey right away. In matters of obedience, when God gives you instruction in his word, by his spirit, when God says, do this or stop doing that or don't do the other, then your best practice is not to argue, not to hesitate, not to, to pull back, but simply to obey. And if you will obey the Lord, you will always be walking in blessing and his commands will not be burdensome to you. You will find that they will bring blessing in your life, which is exactly what Abraham found, even though it didn't make sense to him in the beginning. In matters of obedience, do not delay, but obey 
right away. Now, I might just say to you parents who are raising little ones, that's a great principle to teach your children as well. Amen? Teach your children when I give you instruction, obey. We can talk about it later, but you obey right away. Immediate, first-time obedience is a good principle. We ought to be that way with the Lord, and we should teach our children that as well. So Abraham obeyed. And it would be a reasonable question for any of us to say, how did he do that? I mean, how does a father, particularly this father, at this age, with this miracle baby, upon whom shoulders all of the hope of Israel and really the world is resting, how does he obey this command? And the answer is as the answer always is in Abraham's life and in ours as it should be, is he obeyed by faith. Abraham is obeying God's command in Genesis 22 by faith in the same way that he obeyed the command of Genesis 12 by faith and every other chapter in between. He had, as we've learned, great faith. And here's what's interesting. Abraham's faith was not shaky, but it was, write this down somewhere, his faith was certain. Notice what he says in verse number five. They get to the place where the offering is to be made. Verse five says that Abraham said to the servants, the young men, you stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go there and worship. And then the text says, uh, and the lad and I will come back to you. Isaac and I are going to worship and we will come back to you. Now, wait a minute. Abraham is the only one who knows what God has commanded him to do. And yet he says, we're going to go worship and then we are going to come back to you. How can he have it both ways? How can he be obedient to what God's commanded and yet return with Isaac? It's such a great question and I'm so glad the Bible answers it for us. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Do you see it? Obedience came because of his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he that received the promise, the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, he that received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The Hebrew writer is making the point that all of you are thinking. How's he going to offer up his son after God has said it's through this son and his survival that he's going to bless the whole world and keep all of his promises? Here's how he did it. Verse 19. If y'all listen to both campuses, shout amen. amen. Listen to this. Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. Abraham was accounting that God was able to raise Isaac up from the dead. Here's what Abraham knew. That if God said to me through this boy, all the blessings are coming. If God calls me to sacrifice him, then God will have to raise him from the dead on the spot. So he looks at his servants and says, we're going to worship and we will be back. That's faith. Amen. That's faith. His faith was certain. The second thing about his faith, though, in this passage is that his faith was fueled by experience. His faith was fueled by his experience with God. Look at verse number eight. I love Abraham's answer. He says, Isaac asks Abraham, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And he says in verse eight, my son, 
God will provide a lamb. It's almost as if you can hear Abraham say, Isaac, don't worry about it. God's got it. I trust him. He's never let me down. He's always come through. He's always been faithful. This is the blessing of walking with God over the long haul. Listen carefully. Some of us in this room struggle with this. I just want to challenge you on it. You walk by faith and then you pull back. You go forward and then you hesitate. You trust the Lord and then you don't. And because of that lack of consistency, you're never experiencing God's faithfulness to the full and growing to trust in his faith. Here's my challenge. Just walk by faith. Stop hesitating because the more that you walk by faith, the more that you'll believe you can walk by faith. The more that you trust him, the more that you'll know you can trust him. And Abraham had walked with God for all these years and he said, son, here's all I know. God's got it. He will provide. Only experience can teach you that fully. He was his faith was rooted in the word. It was certain and it was fueled by experience. And then it was complete. If you look at verses number 9 and 10, the Bible tells us that they get there, they build the altar, he lays the wood in order, he binds Isaac, his son, lays him on the altar. Verse 10, takes the the, uh, knife, prepares to slay his son. He's not holding back, he's not pretending, he's not going, hey God, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. One, two. Tracy and I have this little game where when there's just a little dessert left, I'll say, you want it? And she'll go, no, I don't want it. And I'll go, no, you want it. You have, she, I don't want it. i say, I'm going to throw it away. She'll go, okay, I don't want it. And I'll just go to the trash can. You don't throw this away. I'm going to throw it away, right? She said, go ahead. I'm like, okay, I'll eat it. <laughs> he wasn't doing this with God. Went, well, I'm going to do it, Lord. Now, he raised that knife, and he was going to do it. And in the nick of time, the angel calls out, verse number 11, Abraham, stop. And man, don't you know that Abraham went, yes! And dropped that knife. And of course, the lamb, or the ram, the male lamb is provided. And Isaac is saved. Now, do you just want to go, what in the world just happened? Why would God do this? And here's the answer. In fact, I don't have to tell you the text tells you what the answer is. Why did God do this? It was for this reason. It is that God was testing Abraham. In fact, he was testing Abraham's love for him. Look at verse 1, chapter 22, verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt, the King James says. It means test or prove. God did test Abraham. And what was it that he was testing? Look at verse 12. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that you fear me. It means love me, that you worship me, that you revere me. For now I know that you love me. God was testing Abraham's love. Here's a principle. Obedience is the measure and the fruit of love. I love Jesus, we like to say. But do we? Well, the test of that is our obedience. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
That's the measure. If you love me, put, put a tag or a bumper sticker on your car, right? Is that the proof? If you love me, wear a gospel t-shirt. Now, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'm concerned that there are very many followers of Christ who say, I love Jesus. And yet, they don't care much about the commands of Jesus. They're pretty much calling the shots on their own. And not even really looking into the word to see what Jesus says to them. If you still love your pastor, say amen. God was saying, I want to know if you love me. Now, in truth, and I don't have time to unpack all this, God doesn't have to do anything to know everything, right? This test was for Abraham as much as it was for God, but it was this proof, this demonstration that Abraham did in fact love God and would in fact obey him. You and I should do the same. Now, we're not going to have a test like this. I promise you that. We're not going to be called to do what God called Abraham to do. And let's be clear, God never intended that Isaac was going to die on that altar, ever. It was not going to happen. God is opposed to human sacrifice, which was common in Canaan, by the way. But the scriptures repeatedly affirm how God uh, is uh, is, um, obviously opposed to and hates human sacrifice. He never intended that Isaac would die, but he simply was testing Abraham. And Abraham's call, the call of God on Abraham's life was so high that it required such a high bar of of testing and of love. But the truth is, God tests our love in much smaller ways every single day with little tests of obedience. And will you simply do what I have commanded you to do? So what was happening here? God was testing Abraham's love. There's a second thing that was happening, though, and I have to tell you that I really believe that the second thing is, is as important, really in many ways, it's much more important than the fact that God was testing Abraham's love. And it's this, write it down. It is that God was demonstrating in this text in Genesis 22, in the almost sacrifice of Isaac, God was demonstrating his own sacrificial love for us. And you may say, well, I don't get that. What do you mean? How, how does Abraham and Isaac making, Abraham offering Isaac, how does that say anything about what God did for us in Jesus? Well, if you haven't already picked up on the, on the obvious typology in this passage, give me the, the, uh, the honor of pointing it out to you. Everything in Genesis 22 that we've just read is a beautiful prophetic portrait of how that God loved us enough to make the sacrifice of his own son. In the same way that Abraham loved God, so he offered Isaac, God loved us so that he offered his son. Romans 5.8, in this God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is a demonstration of God's love. And in this text, Abraham is a beautiful prophetic type of God himself. And Isaac is a beautiful prophetic type of Jesus. And let me tell you how really quickly. Number one, jot this down somewhere. We know that this is a picture of God's love for us because God chose, uh, as he instructed Abraham, God chose to sacrifice his own son at Mount Moriah. Did you know that this was the case? 
when verse number two says, take Isaac, your only son, unto Moriah, to a mountain that I will show you, go to Mount Moriah, do you know that the word Moriah is only found in the Bible two times? Once in Genesis 22. The second time is in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Let me read it to you, one verse. 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple. He began to build the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Where was it that the sacrifices throughout all of Jewish history were made to the Lord? Where were offerings slaughtered, consumed, and their blood sprinkled? On Mount Moriah. God sent this this offering in Genesis 22, Isaac, to the very place where countless lambs would be offered. But not only where the temple would stand, because on that same mountain ridge at Mount Moriah, where the gold dome stands in Jerusalem today, where the temple once stood, that is the exact same mountain upon which Jesus was crucified. Same mountain ridge, just a little to the north of Mount Moriah, is exactly where Jesus was crucified. So when Abraham comes to Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, it is a beautiful picture of God coming to that same mountain 2,000 years later with his son Jesus. God offered his own son at Mount Moriah as well. Secondly and quickly, it is a picture of God's love for us because God's two servants, like Abraham's servants. God's two servants carried the weight of this redemptive work until it was time, until it was time for Jesus. I'm so struck this week. I've never given much consideration to the two servants in Genesis chapter number 22. And I was just struck this week by the references of these two servants in this passage. Multiple times they are seen doing this work, carrying these things, stopping at the base of Mount Moriah while Abraham and Isaac go on up. These two servants carried the weight of the work that was going to happen. They carried the wood. They carried the fire. They carried the knife. They carried all that would be required for this sacrifice to happen. The fire and the knife so clearly represent this ember in this clay pot, not fully ablaze yet, not fully poured out in an offering of sacrifice yet, but just burning, smoldering, embering. These embers represent the fire of God's wrath moving through time until finally it will blaze in judgment. The knife, the piercing, crucifying knife of God's judgment. These things being carried by the two servants. The two servants also carrying the wood that the altar would be made out of. In my mind, the two servants perfectly represent the law and the prophets. The law declaring the judgment of God and the wrath of God and the prophets pointing ahead to a savior. They couldn't do the work of saving. They couldn't quench the wrath of God, but they proclaimed that one day a savior would come. And God walks through history with his law proclaiming wrath and his prophets proclaiming redemption. He comes to the very place where the fire of judgment will blaze and the altar will be built and the law and the prophets have to stop at Calvary. They can't go any further. They can't redeem. They can't solve 
He says, you stay here. You're just servants. My son and I will go and we will solve this. And so God takes the wood off of the law and the prophets and he puts it on his son. And Jesus, the gospels tells us, carried his cross all the way to Calvary. God takes the wrath off of the law, the promises off of the prophets, all of that in his hands. And he builds an altar on Calvary and the wrath of God uh, flames and the cross is erected and Christ does the work and pays for it. This beautifully represents how that God worked through the law and the prophets, but they couldn't save. He sent Jesus to do the work of salvation. And this is seen thirdly in the fact that Christ took up his cross, as I just mentioned, on Mount Calvary. That Christ carried the wood in the same way that you can see Isaac lumbering up the slopes of Mount Moriah, steep slopes of Mount Moriah, carrying a bundle of sacrificial wood on his back. You read the Gospels and you see Jesus walking that same mountain, carrying sacrificial wood, his own altar, where he will be crucified. Christ took up the cross at Calvary, Fourthly, it is a picture of Christ and his work of salvation and God's love for us. We see it in Isaac in this way, that Christ surrendered to his father's will without resistance the same way that Isaac did. Verse number nine, they came to the place where God had told him of and Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and then he bound Isaac his son. Now remember, Isaac is a lad. He is at least a young teenager. He might be a full-grown man, 18, 20 years old. There's no question he could have resisted and overcome his 120-ish year old father. And so I imagine there was this moment where Abraham says, now Isaac, we're ready, but let me tell you what God has said. I can imagine hot tears streaming down Abraham's face and saying, son, I don't know. I don't know why God would tell me to do this. And I don't know what God's doing or what he's showing. But I know this. I know his promise. And I know he's a God of his word. He'll keep his promise. And Isaac, this is God's will. And Isaac allowed his hands to be bound. And he was laid on the altar. And in the same way the Bible says on the night that Jesus was arrested, he fell on his face. And he said, oh my God, oh my father, not my will but your will be done. In the same way that Isaac submitted to the will of his father, Jesus submitted to the will of his father and gave his life for us. And the fourth thing, or the fifth thing I would simply say about this as we're closing is just to say that for, for Jesus, there was no substitute. Abraham raises the knife to slay his son and the angel says, stop! And there's a ram caught in the thicket and, and Isaac is lifted off of the altar and this ram is slaughtered in his place. But for Jesus, there was no sacrifice because when Jesus came to Mount Moriah carrying his wood, having taken the full burden from the law and the prophets, fully submitting to the will of his Father, when it came time to die, Jesus was the substitute. And he died for our sins. And then in the same way that the Hebrew writer reminds us that Abraham took Isaac off the altar, that was a symbolic resurrection because Christ died for us and then he rose from the dead. Do you see it over and over again in Genesis 22? God is not just saying, Abraham, do you love me? He's saying to all of you, I love you. 
And 2,000 years from Genesis 22, God came back to Mount Moriah and offered his son for your salvation and for mine. You say, how long has God loved me? Well, he's loved you for at least 4,000 years because he was thinking about you when Abraham walked up that mountain with Isaac. But the Bible says he's loved you longer than that. He's loved you since the foundation of the world. And this passage in Genesis 22 is just a little snapshot of God saying, can I please have your attention? Look, this is how much I love you.